Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 18. We have two wonderful stories for you today, so let's not waste any more time. Got your drink? Good. First up, we're going to listen to The Funeral, Ruined, by Ben Peake. Mr. Peake is the Sydney-based author of Black Sheep, 26 Lies, One Truth, Above, Below, and Dead Americans and Other Stories, in which the funeral ruined can be found. His most recent novel is the first volume of the children trilogy, The Godless. You can find out more at theurbansprawlproject.com. The story is read for us by Kim Mintz, a returning narrator to Triple F. Kim is a professional voice actor who is expanding her already extensive repertoire into audiobooks, you can listen to her and find out more at her webpage. Links on the Triple F. So, without further ado, let's listen to The Funeral Ruined by Ben Peake. It was the weight that woke Lynette. Her weight. The weight of herself. The flat red sky above Issuer was waiting when she opened her eyes. Five hours before, when she had closed her eyes, it had been a dark, ugly brown red the middle of the night. Now it was the clear early morning red, and a thick, muggy warmth was seeping through her open window with the new light. There would be no rain today. Just the heat. Just the sweat. Just that uncomfortable, hot awareness of herself that both brought. The worst was Lynette's short, dark hair, dirty with sweat and ash. The ash that had come through the open window during the night. It had streaked her face and settled in her mouth and she could taste it, dry, burnt and unappealing in her gums. Her left arm, 
with its thick, straight scars across the forearm, felt heavy and ached, but it always ached. It was a dull, lazy ache in the heat, and a sharp, pointed pain in the cold, as if, with the latter, the brittle weather was digging into her fractured bone to snap it. Her feet, tangled at the bottom of her coarse, ash-stained brown sheets, sweated uncomfortably, and her long, straight back could feel the sweaty outline of the bronze frame beneath the thin mattress that she lay on. There was no end to herself, Lynette thought, and she would never be able to sleep again, so aware of it was she. Her dreams had not been a sanctuary, however. In them, Lynette had lived under a different part of the red sun, wrapped in heavy brown clothes, wearing pieces of light bronze armor, and holding a short, wide-nosed gun. Around her, clouds of black ash spewed from the back of bronze, gray, and silver contoured machines. Cages of crows peppered the ground, and inside the blackbird sat silently, waiting. They were not real, she knew. They never had been. The ground the fake birds lay on was mud and ash and the waste of brown and red trees that had been torn down to make the circular camp she lived in. The wastage clung to her boots, leaving a trail to its center behind her. There was a man beside her, but she couldn't make him out. He had been asking her when she planned to read the letter, but she had responded by telling him to be quiet. Two men had escaped, she said. They could be anywhere. They could be watching. They were, but she had awoken before that. It didn't matter. She knew the outcome, had lived it, didn't need to experience it again. The letter, however, was not part of the memory. The letter was part of the muggy heat in her life in Ishuar. It was sitting in her tiny kitchen, leaning against an old bronze kettle, thin, straight, pristine, and white, a perfect set of teeth to speak with. Her name was printed in messy letters on the front, and though a young, clean-skinned man she didn't know had delivered it, she knew the author. Slowly, Lynette pushed herself up with her good arm. Her left arm was a dead weight in her lap. It would take a shower and exercise for it to gain full movement. Two months out of the hospital, out of the army, and a month living in Ishuar, and her arm had only just begun to improve to the point that she could use it properly. But it took time, still. She slid across the bed that was big enough for two, but held only one, and placed her feet down on the cool stone floor of a room so bare that a visitor would have thought no one lived in it. The room's possessions lay in the hallway in a disorganized jumble. Lynette had thrown them there last night. The large, bronze-frame mirror that had, once, set on the far wall to give the room size, now leant against the wall with cracks around the top. Near it lay a brass clock, and next to that a stocky bronze fan with bent blades, followed by a dozen tiny mechanical devices that she had been unable to stomach the thought of having near her as she slept. The way that each simulated a natural event or imposed an artificial meaning. She had been disgusted by them, just as she had been by the way she had treated each with easy familiarity at one stage in her life. In anger, she had been to throw them from the room and open the window so that the muggy, ash-stained breeze could enter. She had not yet opened the letter. My dear Lynette, I do not know how to begin, but I do know that there is little time left for me to write. In half an hour the operation will begin. I'm apprehensive. My hand trembles. 
I've always prided myself on clean, simple letters, but look at them now. They cross lines. They mix against each other. They slope one way, then another. They fall outside the neat order that I have cherished so much. I suppose, given what is about to happen, it is the way things should be. Nothing in life is neat and contained. She tried to eat, but the taste of ash lingered in her mouth, even after she had rinsed. From her chair at the kitchen table, Lynette swallowed her half-chewed piece of apple, then tossed the remaining half into the bin next to her sink. The apple was small, brown, and made an unpleasant, soggy slap as it hit the brass bottom of the bin. Silence followed. The tall woman, now wearing black pants and a long-sleeved black button shirt, had not allowed a sound to escape her mouth since waking up. She had left the bedroom rubbing the scars on her arm, disgusted by the way sweat gathered around the thick, puckered flesh. She had stepped around the mess in the hall, entered the toilet, pissed, showered, scrubbed herself with hard movements, worked her arm until it moved like the other, then dressed and picked up the apple. The only noise had been her feet on the slowly warming concrete floor. Not so long ago, the mornings had been filled with sound. Men and women she knew in smoky, hazy camps, talking about bad food, about operations, about people back home, and those they knew now. Before she had left, and when she lived in Laydorn, there had been conversations about what kind of toast she would prefer and who would come up with dinner. Insignificant, shallow, domestic conversations. Lynette gazed through the dirty window of the kitchen. The tall, dark shadows of windmills lined Issuer's morning skyline, a few turning slowly, but most that she could see were still. The empty red of sky hung above them regardless, still and oppressive. She did not think consciously for the half an hour that she sat at the table, her fingernails clicking on the bronze top every now and then. Her mind had drifted and, in a mix of fragments from conversation, bits of song, parts from books, and even scenes from plays that she had seen, her mind turned itself over until finally she began to focus on a man. He was blonde, slim, and his teeth were crooked, and he had been an unlikely lover for her as much as she had for him. She did not want to think of him, and when her arm began to throb again, either with real or symbolic pain, she knew that she had to stop before her thoughts turned into a morbidity that crumbled her resolve for the day. Quietly, Lynette entered the small, pale, gray-painted living room. There was a long brown couch in the middle, while a slim bronze table and brass and silver-lined radio sat on top of it in the far corner. A box of outside opinions pushed aside. On the floor, however, were a pair of old, scuffed black boots, which Lynette picked up. Holding them, she sat down upon the couch, and there, paused again. In the kitchen, the letter sat, still, against the kettle. "'I've been to too many funerals,' she said, as if it could reply to her. It could not, of course, but the fact that she had spoken to it both frustrated and upset her. With hard yanks, she tightly wound the frayed black laces of her boots up. On the right boot she missed a hole, and on the left, too. She ground her teeth together harshly both times, but retied carefully, wiping her hands free from sweat. Finished, she rose and crossed the tiny kitchen to the back door. Her strides were quick and purposeful, the walk of a woman who had an unpleasant task ahead of her, but who would meet it without flinching. Are you angry? 
That day when I first met you, you were angry. Nearly two years, and that is what I remember about you most. It is not your beauty, not your smile, not your habits. No, for over the years I have realized that these do not define you. They are secondary to your anger, that brilliant burning anger that exists because the world is not right. The anger that exists because you must fix it somehow. The first time I saw you was from afar, standing beneath a bronze parasol, while you stood at the front of the anti-war rally in Ladorn, and it was there that I saw that anger. You demanded to know why Ajin mattered so much to the Shibtree Isles, why the queen and her children were such a threat. You told us that they lived in cramped cities beneath the earth, away from our red sun, and with the bones of crows around their necks to catch their souls when they died. They were full of superstition that made the men and women who had morticians tattoo their life into their skin for God seem at the forefront of science and logic. What impressed me most, and everyone else I might imagine, was that you were not a person off the street, but a career soldier. You stood in front of us in the straight, light brown pants and suit of the army, your medals and rank displayed for all. You were proud of who you were. You were proud of what you had done for the Isles. You were proud to be in service. But now you were angry, and that anger would not allow you to be silent. No matter the consequences, it was an anger to fear, and, I am afraid to say, I did, and do, fear it. The pear-shaped ovens of Ishuar dominated the city's horizon, though they were easily an hour away by carriage. Lately, the twin ovens had a tendency to blur around the edges for Lynette, but even with beginning of her deteriorating eyesight due to her thirty-eighth year, the immense girth and height of the creations meant that they were unable to be passed over when she looked at Ishuar's skyline. In contrast, the hundreds of long, bronze windmills that rose out of the city could, and did, fade from her awareness. The ovens, however, lurked on the horizon like a pair of dark, hunched watchers outside the city, covered in a layer of soot as a disguise. If you managed to forget them, and Lynette doubted she ever could, then you would be reminded each Friday when they belched tart-smelling ash and plumes rode out of each to signal the burning of the weekly dead. Outside of her house, Lynette spent a moment in morbid contemplation of the ovens. It was where she would finish her mortal journey she knew. A friend, a family member, perhaps even a mortician would take her body wrapped in white sheets up to the silent monks who lived beneath the ovens. There she would be bathed, cleaned, and finally placed in the giant pits that never fully cooled and which would ignite at the end of the week, consuming her. There was nowhere else that she would prefer to end. She would not be buried in the ground, not given, or sold, or stolen to a surgeon's workshop. What was left of her would be burnt away. She would be given freedom. Her small house sat at the end of Ishuar, surrounded by other small, cheap red brick houses. Packed dirt worked as a road around them, but within minutes she had stepped onto the paved streets of Ishuar proper. There, the tall windmills turned at a variety of paces, powered by electricity that was strung from house to house. Ishuar had never been big. It was a transient city, organized in an ordered grid, with street names that indicated purpose. Everything in it was designed to make it easy for the visitor, of which Ishuar saw many. It was a city, more a town really, where men and women arrived for a few days, a week, and after they had seen the ovens burn and their duty was done to family and loved ones, they left. 
The windows to the private houses Lynette passed were shut, the boards pulled closed. Inside, bronze fans circulated the air, but the impression of personal lives being closed off was not an illusion. The people who lived in issue were kept to themselves for the most part, and it was only when you entered the middle of the city, where the public stores, hotels, and other places of business were, that an openness existed. There, windows were open. There, fans sat on the streets, blowing, while larger windmills, the largest in the city, turned above them. There, men and women, mostly young, presented the smiling, happy faces of Ishuar to visitors. Everywhere, and every one, else, Lynette believed, looked like a coffin, closed in, quiet, and still. Death was the commodity of Ishuar. A. Allen Pierre, a black man who had come to the Isles as a child and made a fortune as a body-snatcher, had founded it. When age had finally driven him into looking for a way to settle, he had looked at the makeshift tent city that existed outside the ovens and sunk his considerable ill-gained fortune into turning it into something more lasting. It wasn't long until hotels were built, surgeons and morticians arrived, as did the other trades that had attached themselves to the industry of death. The people, like Lynette, who drifted into the town, drawn by their own morbid frame of mind and the internal struggles that each had, had always been part of it. Lynette herself did not know exactly what it was that drew her to issuer. Her pension provided enough for rent, food, but very little else. In another city she might find work and earn more, but while her life was mean she did not dislike it. The heat bothered her, but it was not as bad as the cold. She was lonely, but no, no, that was wrong. She was not lonely. She had not been lonely since she moved here and had been able to gaze upon the ovens daily. I'm not a soldier, and I do not pretend to know what you went through, or why, indeed, Issuer allows you to sleep more calmly than you did in Ladorn. But I like to think I have been supportive of all your needs, that I have tried as much as I possibly can to be supportive of you. It has not been easy, Lynette. It is true, yes, that I have not been in the best health. But your hatred towards the advancements in our society have made our lives, our illnesses and injuries, more difficult than they should be. Neither of us can heal with your attitude. For you, it is your arm that bothers you. Why would it not? The machete of an escaped prisoner splintered the bone, and it is now held together by steel rods. It will take years to heal, if it ever does, and it bothers you greatly. The obvious solution to your injury was a replacement, which was offered by the army surgeons, but you rejected this, and you have since rejected anything that the surgeons have been able to offer that takes away what you are born with. You tell them and you tell me that it is unnatural, that it is not right. But what is right, I ask? Tattooing your body for God? Wearing a charm around your neck to capture your soul? To believe the ocean is a living God? To believe the hundreds of other unexplainable things in this world? Are these somehow more acceptable to you now than the science that has been developed, the advancements that will allow us to live long, healthy lives? Though Lynette did not believe in a God, she made her way to the men and women who traded in that belief on the Mortician's Avenue. Specifically, she made her way to the long, straight building of the Mortician, Yvelt Frey, which was made from caramel-colored bricks. It had a dark, brown-tiled roof and was the largest building in the street, lying curled in between a dozen smaller houses of varying brick color. Her building had three bronze windmills around it, two on the roof, 
and one larger piece cemented at the back, and which towered over all others on the street. At the bronze door, Miss Frey, whose hair, it appeared, had only been freshly dyed a red-brown, greeted Lynette. Her skin, however, sagged around her jaw, wrinkled over her face, and continued to do so down her neck until it was covered by the brown gown she wore. Beneath the tattoos across her body there was no tautness of youth, and so the illusion created by dyeing her hair seemed ridiculous and nothing more than a vanity. Lynette, it is a pleasure to see you. Mrs. Frey's deep voice sounded as if it should emerge from a larger woman. Lynette, are you? He's dead. Ah, a pause then. I'm very sorry. There was a letter. Her voice was short-clipped. She could feel the emotion in the back of her mouth, threatening to spill out over her words. He, he wasn't there yesterday. Come in, come in, Mrs. Frey murmured, stepping back from the door to allow her entry. The inside of the house was lit in a warm orange and divided by a set of thick bronze doors. Over each panel of the door was a pattern of angels and devils at war, naked and carrying weapons. The figures on it were ridiculous. Sexless for angel, sexual for devil, and posed in mid-action. Behind the twisting battle Lynette knew lay the private residence of Mrs. Frey and her family, who were also part of the mortician trade. She had never been behind the door, and never would, but expected it to be different to what she saw now. The side of the house she stood on was plain, but expensively decorated with a floor covered in wooden boards and cushioned lounges made from pale brown leather. There was a real ash-wood table at the end of the room, with a ledger that was used for appointments and payments. A feathered quill lay on it. It looked as if one of Mrs. Frey's angels had made a table out of the dead for her, and left one of its own feathers to write with. "'Would you like a drink?' the elderly mortician asked. "'No, I—' The emotions from before welled up, threatened her, and she swallowed it. "'I'm fine. I would just like to start, if possible.' "'Of course.' Lynette had known that there would not be a problem. She had left early, before Issuer fully awoke, and arrived when she knew that Mrs. Frey would be awake with the early morning vitality that the elderly had. Had she arrived later and the woman had been engaged, she would have had to wait. For once a mortician began leaving his or her mark on you, another would not touch you until the first had died. Lynette knew that she did not have the patience to wait today. Mrs. Frey led her to a small room where, with a click, white electric light flooded its darkness. In the middle lay a chair made from bronze and with thick cushions on it. The bolts and screws and dials in it ensured that while the chair was ugly, it could be folded into a number of positions. Mrs. Frey flattened the chair into a board before turning to the trays that lined the side of the room, filled with needles and pots of ink. Lynette had received her first tattoo shortly after she had moved to Issuer, when her arm had been mostly useless, but it was the memories of the war that damaged her mostly. She had been in the army for twenty-one years and had seen men and women die, just as she had killed, by her reckoning, more than thirty in various battles. Psychologically, death was nothing new to her. She had always been able to rationalize it to make it part of her job, at least until the campaign against the Empress and her children began, and she found herself fighting men, always men, armed with mining equipment and rusted machetes and muskets so old that wouldn't hurt anyone but the owner. It was impossible to look at those men and see a threat. After she left the army with her injury, she had struggled with that awareness and how to deal with it. 
On her back were 113 names in the neat, elegant script of Mrs. Frey. They were the names of soldiers, friends, some, but a large portion were men and women who she had fought with, peers and comrades before friends. Each one of them, however, had died fighting the Empress and her children. Each one of them had died needlessly, died pointlessly, died for nothing but the greed of their own country. Do you still want this outside the others? Mrs. Frey asked, referring to the new tattoo. On the small of your back? Lynette nodded. She did not need to speak his name, which for that she was grateful. Climbing onto the bench, Lynette pulled her shirt up, then curled her arms beneath her chin and waited. The puckered flesh of her bad arm was uncomfortably warm against her, and she could feel her muscles tensing in anticipation for the moment when her skin was pierced. So, a voice. His voice. So, he said, repeating it, drawing it out, letting his very familiar voice sink into her. This is my funeral. I am dying. Soon I will be taken into a chamber where two giant tubes hang from the ceiling, and I will be submerged in a green liquid. There I will die. There I will be put into a new body. There I will return. I will return without these weak lungs I was born with, without holes in my heart, without the pains that stop me from being able to travel this world of ours, without having oxygen next to me. When I awake, I will be, for the first time that I can remember, without pain. You would rather me die. You said that to me only a week ago, stroking my hair as I lay in our bed, exhausted by the muggy heat, and unable to draw a good breath. You would rather me die than return a man made from bronze and silver and skin. You would rather mourn me than celebrate me. You defend the right for the Empress and her children to worship and live as they wish? but it strikes me that their beliefs are not so different than mine. For them, they return in a new body, reborn into their family by a sister, brother, daughter, or son, perhaps even their own parents. The men and women who believe in God, and who we share our cities with, believe they will be reborn too, given a new life in heaven, or hell after their life has been judged by God. So why is it that I cannot return? You will be angry, I know, when you read this. You will see it as betrayal. I do not wish for you to do so, but you will. If I... I will find you, Lynette. I will talk to you. The surgeon is in front of me right now, and she is urging me to finish, so I must. But I will find you after... I will. For a moment he looked just like the man she remembered. Slender, pale, blonde with a blade of a smile that revealed his crooked yellow teeth. Except, of course, that they were not crooked, and therein the truth was told. They were straight and white, and he was, she knew, dead. The room was quiet with the pause between words and actions. Lynette, and she assumed Mrs. Huey, could hear the faint murmur of machinery that surrounded the man before her, much in the way that insects create a susurration of noise in the evening. If allowed, it would slip into the background, become a familiar, normal buzz, if it could be allowed, that is. To Lynette, the sound only served to remind her of the fact that, beneath his pale skin, he was no longer bones, no longer blood, no longer all the things that she was. Instead, 
He was bronze and brass bones circled by copper and silver wiring and with complex motor in the center of his chest. The skin, like the pale red pants and black shirt he wore, was just another piece of clothing, a piece of fashion to allow him to look as if he were part of the world. Nothing to say, he said finally. He remained standing in the doorway to the room, the orange light behind him bathing him in artificial warmth. I came all this way. You should leave. Her voice was hard. I don't want you here. Lynette. No. I. Mrs. Foy, please. Lynette turned to the elderly mortician who had been watching the exchange calmly. Can you do nothing? Don't look to her, he said, a hint of smugness in his voice. How do you think I am here? She left the door open. She agreed to my plan to meet you here. Mrs. Frey smiled faintly, apologetically, and Lynette felt the betrayal deeply. It was true that she did not follow the same faith as the mortician, and that her tattoos were about grief, not God. Her words were a closure that she could not get elsewhere in life but she had begun to trust the older woman as she trusted few. As the work on her back drew to an end, Lynette had felt a bond with Mrs. Frey, and to feel that connection severed so sharply, so quickly, so instantly, hurt her more than she would have ever considered. I thought seeing him would help, Mrs. Frey explained. You have an irrational. Lynette jumped off the table and stalked toward the door. Her body was tense as she approached him. But her gaze held his, and she knew, knew, that if he touched her, she would lash out. Lynette, please listen. The murmur of his body grew louder when he opened his mouth. Please stop. Listen to us. His hand moved to her, but she reacted quickly, slapping it aside. Don't touch me, she hissed. She could feel her grief and anger mixing close to hysteria and she fought it back as best she could to retain her control. Don't ever touch me. Never. Do you understand? Never. Don't come anywhere near me. I know you're kind, and you may think you're someone I know, but you are not. You're not him. He's dead. You're just the copy of him. You're nothing but a tool, an object, something to be used. Something to be sent in to kill men with. Something that can pretend that it's dead, so that you can sneak in like an assassin and kill them without remorse. Something that can switch off every emotion because it is just a wire. Something that lets me switch off my emotions. Something that lets me kill one. Kill ten. Kill fifty! Something that allows me to kill as many people as I please because... Lynette. Because... You make death meaningless. Silence. His mouth opened, the hint of growling mechanics growing into an artificial shout, but she shouldered past, bashed past him, threw him off balance with his new heavy weight, and his voice did not emerge. Her damaged arm throbbed in a sharp, renewed pain. Good, she thought. Good! She wanted to feel the pain. The pain would stop the tears would hide the hurt, the betrayal, and if, perhaps, while she stalked along the streets of Issuer back to her house, if perhaps tears slipped out from the corner of her eyes, 
and she would know it was the pain in her arm and nothing else. For all the differences we have, for all the difficulties that we have faced since your return, Lynette, I want you to know that I am still dedicated to us, to preserving us, Antony. The tears had stopped by the time Lynette reached her house, but her body was covered in a sheen of sweat, as it had begun to weep silently now that her eyes were dry. She was conscious of the twin shapes of the ovens behind her and the finality that they represented. It was a small comfort, and as she stood at the side of her house and gazed back at Issuer with its barely populated streets that were threaded together by shadowy lines of electricity and punctuated by bronze windmills, she took that comfort for as much as she could. Even though the city had betrayed her, no, not Issuer itself, but a part of the city, part of its trade, its life. The oven sat, unmoving, waiting, the period that put everything into perspective for her, the period that gave her security. She took from the ovens everything that she could, and when she entered the house finally and saw his letter, leaning against the kettle just as it had before, her previous anger and hurt failed to rise. She could throw it away and knew, perhaps, that she should. She could rip it, cut it up, drown it, burn it. And yet, despite herself, she did not. Hmm, some of the themes are kind of apropos at the moment, don't you think? I really like this piece. I hope you did too. Our second story today is called Poison, and it's written by Bruce McAllister. This prolific author lives in Orange County, California, with his wife, choreographer Emily Hunter, and works as a writer, writing coach, and book and screenplay consultant. It's read by Andrew Lehman, who is a producer, designer, actor, writer, and director, not necessarily in that order. He's appeared on professional stages in Chicago and Los Angeles, and is a member of Theatre Banshee in Burbank, California. He's designed graphics and props for numerous films and TV shows, and a number of digital fonts that have been used extensively by graphic designers worldwide. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. With his friend and collaborator of many years, Sean Branny, Andrew has been running the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society since 1984 and has developed numerous film, audio, and gaming projects. Andrew is pleased also to be a frequent contributor to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. And once upon a time, he was a fossil preparator for the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. You can learn more at a couple of websites, links to be found on the Triple F. So, here we have it. Poison by Bruce McAllister, read by Andrew Lehman. In school that day, the American boy, whose twelfth birthday was approaching, did just as well as his friends on the Roman history recitation and the spelling test, which included the word stregeria, witchcraft, which could, if you weren't careful, easily be confused with stragaria, an old-fashioned word for respect. After school let out, he and his friends celebrated their good fortune by buying new plastic blowguns at the toy store in the fishing village and spending an hour making dozens of little paper cones with sewing needles taped to their points. Every boy in this country had at least one blowgun. They were cheap, no longer than a ruler, so the American boy had one too. When the cones were finished, they went back up the hill and there, on the convent wall not far from his family's villetta, hunted the lizards all boys in this country hunted. It wasn't easy hitting them. The bright green lizards weren't big and they moved like lightning, but he and his friends had gotten good at it. To keep things equal, they each stopped at six, leaving the bodies, which made the American boy sad if he looked at them too long, at the foot of the wall where the convent cats might eat them if they were hungry enough. The next night, after dinner, the American boy watched as his own cat, which he'd had for a year, slept with every night and named Nevis, the Latin word for snow, died in his bathtub, making little pig-like sounds until he couldn't stand it any longer and he went outside to the flagstone patio to wait in darkness for the terrible sound to stop. When it finally did, he went back in, saw a strange shadow hovering over the tub, held his breath until it was gone, and then picked his cat up. When the limp but still warm body made him cry, he let it. His parents were next door at their landlords, the Loopies, and wouldn't be back for a while. No one would hear him. No one would say, as his mother sometimes did, You're too attached to your pets, John. Even your dad thinks so. He knew who had done it. The three witches who lived in the olive groves that covered the hills around their house always put out poison for cats. If a cat died too suddenly for a doctor to help and in great pain, everyone knew it was poison and who had put it out. It was what witches did, poisoning animals you loved. Everyone knew this. Hand shaking, he found a paper bag under the kitchen sink just the right size for the body, put it in gently, twisted the top, and, though it hurt him to do it, 
left it in the bathtub where no one would notice it during the night. It was his bathroom, and no one would look in his tub until their maid came on Monday. If his parents asked him where the cat was, he'd say he didn't know, and when he was finished with what he needed to do, he'd tell them what had happened. Or at least how the cat had died, poisoned by a witch, and how he'd buried it, which would indeed be true by the time he'd finished what he needed to do. The next morning, as he ate breakfast with his mother and father, he asked, "'What do witches do on Sunday?' "'They're not witches,' his mother answered. "'They're just old women, John, and if they had family, if they lived in town with their families, the entire village would call them Befane, Christmas witches, and not Strege, which is so unkind.' His mother was a teacher and was always teaching. She was wrong. They wouldn't be called Befane. They'd be called Nonne, grandmothers.' but she was frustrated that she didn't know the language well enough to teach in this country, so she was always lecturing whenever she could. "'It doesn't matter whether they're witches or not,' the boy answered, and as he did, knew that it had begun and that he could not turn back. The truth, the courage to speak it, the anger needed for such courage. To stand before the witch who'd done it and talk to her about what was fair and what wasn't, to make her feel what he felt, and by doing so free himself from an anger that was like a spell, one that might hold him forever if he did not find her in the olive groves and make her see what she had done. You could be more sensitive about the elderly, his mother was saying, and you don't need to speak to me or your father in that tone of voice, John. I had no tone, he wanted to say, but knew it would only make her madder and he would have to spend the morning undoing what he had done. He had his own anger now and anger was a powerful thing. It could make you courageous. It could make people do what you wanted. But it was also a spell, like a song you couldn't get out of your head and could make you a slave to it. He did not want to be a slave to it, but he did have a right to be angry, didn't he? His cat had died in his bathtub, making that terrible sound, and as she died he'd stood there, seen the shadow and watched it happen, the soul of his cat being pulled from its dying body by the ghostly hand of an old woman, the end of its pinky finger missing. I will know the witch by her hand, he told himself again, by her little finger. After breakfast, he went to his bathroom, picked up the bag carefully, and headed out into the great olive grove toward the place where the trees were dead and the witches lived in their stone huts. His friends would have told him not to, that only bad would come of it, even if you are right to be sad and angry, Johnny, and the boy was surprised he was doing it. He was supposedly shy, wasn't he? This is what people said. Why did it take the death of his cat for him to be brave? And was it really bravery? Or was it simply the need to tell the truth, to stand before the old woman who'd done it and ask her, Why did you poison my cat? But also to say, I would not kill what you love, signora. He would begin, he decided, with the first stone hut, the one closest to his family's house on the hill. The witch who lived there would have found it easiest to poison his cat, wouldn't she? Whether she had put the poison by her hut or in the olive trees nearer his house wouldn't have mattered. Nevis had never gone far, so the chances she had traveled to the huts of the two witches higher up the hill made no sense. It was the closest witch who'd done it, he was sure. He had never laid eyes on her, but he had heard her in her hut when he and his friends had snuck in close one day, hiding in the little cave on the sunless side of the hill and watching from a distance, hoping to see her and yet afraid to. They never did, but they knew other boys who had. 
Her teeth, a boy from the wharf had told them, were so bad you'd get nightmares if you looked at them. Yes, he'd seen her. Things were crawling in her mouth, and her tongue had made a noise like a viper's hiss. Another boy, Carlo, one who lived near the castle that overlooked the bay, hadn't seen her himself, but his older brothers had years ago. They'd seen her hut turn green, tremble as if it were alive, even move toward them just before she'd looked up, seen them, and shouted. They'd run, and as they had, they'd felt her green breath touch their backs. Days later they could still feel something crawling on them, and one of the brothers had scratched himself bloody trying to stop the itch. When he glimpsed the hut through the trees, he stopped. It was green, yes, but that was because of the lichen. Everything in these groves, tree trunks, walls, and paths, had bright green lichen on it. And something moved, yes, but it was only an olive branch scraping across the hut's thatched roof. The trees here were not as dead as he remembered them. They had leaves. They were very alive. Why he remembered them as dead, he didn't know, unless it was that fear that had made it seem so. He was not afraid today, so the trees were alive and the sunlight bright. Was that the reason? There was a vegetable garden he did not remember, and a stone path wandering from the hut's doorway into the grass where it ended. He began toward it, under the trees, past a green lizard that watched him from a tree trunk, through the grass that reached his bare knees, through sudden yellow wild flowers, to the start of the path, its first flat stone where he stopped. His heart jumped once in what felt like fear, but the sun was bright, and he clenched the paper bag, feeling his courage. Strega, he wanted to shout, because it was true, but instead he said courteously, with only a little anger, Signora! No one appeared in the doorway, which seemed small, even for a witch. Now he shouted it, Signora! He rattled the bag just a little. The body was stiff now, and he didn't want to do it, but maybe the old woman, because she was a witch, would hear it and know the reason he was here, even if she wanted to ignore him. Adesso, he said, rattling the bag again, wondering how long it took maggots to grow. Voglio parlare con lei, signora. I wish to speak to you. Had Gian Felice been with him, they would never have come this close. They'd have stayed out under the nearest tree, or the second or third or fourth nearest, and thrown stones at the hut to get her attention, or shouted at her from a very safe distance. But he was too angry for that, and anger could make you feel safe. Gian Felice would have let his fear keep them in the trees, and the witch would know it, and it would give her courage, which the boy did not want. Witches had enough as it was. Besides, he would not be able to see her hand if he stayed in the trees. Something stirred in the darkness just inside the doorway, as he had known it would. This is what witches do, he told himself. They stir in the darkness to scare you. It was silly, the stirring. Come out, he shouted in her language. I am here to do business with you. Have the courage to come out, signora. Had he really shouted that in her language? Had he really known what words to use? Yes, because he heard himself shouting it again. Viene qui, coraggio, signora. After a moment, the stirring spoke. Vengo, it said, and the shadow stepped outside. Que vuoi? she asked, annoyed, her teeth indeed terrible. Even at this distance they were little yellow sticks, gaps between them, and how she ate, if she did eat, the boy didn't know. 
Her hair was long and gray, and she was as hunched as he'd imagined she'd be. But she was wearing black, as most old women in this country did, and this surprised him. The old women who wore black no longer had husbands, he knew. Their men were dead, from war, from heart attacks, from fegato problems. So they were widows, and widows wore black. But witches had no husbands. This is what Emilio had said more than once. Witches never marry. They hate men and the boys who will become them. A witch who wore black made no sense. I am here because of what is in this bag, he said, holding it up, trying to keep his hand from shaking. But it shook, and worse, he was too far from her for his plan to work. He would have to be close enough that with just one step she could take the bag from him, to look inside, and when she did, he would see her hand. He took a step toward her, stopped, took another, holding the bag out. No matter what he did, no matter how much anger he made himself feel, his hand would not stop shaking. Perhaps it wasn't fear. Perhaps it was only anger that made it shake. When he was at last before her, he tried not to look at her teeth, but at her eyes, which were nearly closed, as if afraid of the light. If he stared at her eyes, if he made her feel his anger, perhaps the shaking would stop. But then he smelled her. It was the smell of old women. Old women at the Saturday market in town. Old women on the wharf, when they didn't smell like fish. And also the smell of his own grandmother, when he was little, before she died. It was the smell of vinegar. She uses it on her hair, his mother had once said. He had loved his grandmother, but there were other smells to this old woman, too, and they were not his grandmother's. Her eyes opened a little then, and he saw that one was brown and one was green. This did not surprise him. Witches were not like ordinary people. He was wrinkling his nose at her smell, he realized, but before he could stop himself, she said, do not come close if my body offends you, ragazzo. His courage weakened then, and for a moment he could not find his anger. I am not here, signora, he said as quickly as he could, to discuss smells. I am here about what is in this bag. He thrust it at her. When she did not take it, he held his hand as steady as he could and waited. If he could not see her hand, he would not know. When she spoke... He wasn't sure he'd heard her correctly. "'You wish to see my hand?' she repeated. The bag was shaking even more now, but he made himself nod. "'Yes, I wish to see your hand.' She made a sound like a snort, reached out and grabbed the bag. As she did, she shifted her weight to her other leg, which was shorter, but just as skinny. For a moment he thought she might fall, and if she did, what would he do then?' Should you touch a witch? Should you help her up? But she didn't fall. She steadied herself, holding the bag in her hand, and stared at him. He still hadn't seen her hand, but he had to look away. Her eyes knew him. His bedroom, his cat, his parents' house. And the knowing made him afraid. I know what this bag holds, ragazzo. I do not need to look inside it. What dies deserves respect, not to be put in a bag, not to be opened in the sunlight and stared at. Do you not agree? Yes, the boy said. And then he saw the green lichen that covered, completely covered the hut, its walls and thatch roof, begin to move, all of it, to wiggle. No, not 
wiggle, but to crawl, moving towards them slowly now, even as the boy stopped breathing. The hut was moving. No, the lichen was. But it wasn't lichen. It was lizards. It wasn't possible. Lizards, hundreds, maybe thousands of them. The green lizards that lived in these groves were all here, somehow, sunning themselves on the roof and sunlit side of the hut, and now leaving their sunny places to move toward him and the old woman. They were hers, he realized suddenly. They were her pets. They were coming to see what a boy might want with their mistress. And then the movement stopped, and the roof and the sunny side of the hut fell still again. The lizards were waiting, he saw. But for what? It was like a dream, but it wasn't. It was real. She was a witch, after all, and with a witch, anything was possible. Then why did you put what you loved and what loved you in a bag, she was asking him, holding it, but not looking in it. He made himself find the words he had practiced. Because I wanted you to see it. Why? Because I was angry. Why? Because I knew that someone poisoned her. I saw the hand that did it. I wanted the person to see what she had done. The old woman did not speak for a moment. Like all boys, she said at last with a sigh, you understand nothing. But here is my hand, ragazzo. Holding the bag, the hand came toward him, stopping so close to his face that he had to step back. When a lizard crawled suddenly from the old woman's black sleeve, he almost screamed. The old woman snorted again, and the lizard scampered down the side of the bag and back up again to her hand. Via, she said to it. The creature returned to her sleeve, where three others were peering out now, watching him. Is this the hand you saw? It was. Two blue veins made a Y, with the end of the pinky finger missing, just as it had in the bathroom. He nodded. The old woman said nothing. It was up to him, he knew. Why did you want the soul of the animal I loved? he asked. When she spoke at last, it was with another sigh. It was not the soul of your cat I took, she said. And though he didn't want it to, it sounded true. And because it did, his anger left him once more, and with it, his courage. I was taking another thing, she was saying. Or at least... This is what he heard. Whether she was actually speaking the words out loud in the air in this sunlight, he could not be sure. He did not hear words in her language. He heard his own language, and he could not even be sure she was speaking at all with a throat. I was taking back, her voice was saying, the soul of my Lucertola, my lizard. It did not make sense. His cat was not a lizard. But then he saw it because she wished him to. His cat had eaten a lizard, and it had been one of hers. His cat had ventured into the grove too far, come upon her hut and her lizards, and, as cats do, eaten one of them. It was true, he saw. It was not some lie she wanted him to believe. She had poisoned his cat because his cat had killed her lizard, she had lost something she had loved, too, and had acted in anger. 
he could have said, was poison the only way? But then she would say, I chased your cat away many times, but she kept coming back, curious, ready to eat more of my lizards if I did not poison her. When he could say, why didn't you come to my house and tell me? You knew where I lived. And then she would say, you would have wanted a witch in your doorway. You would have believed her. You would not in anger have come with your friends to throw rocks at her house. Worst of all, she might even say, I killed what you loved to save what I love. And what would his answer be then, except the silence of sadness? She was a witch and might be lying to make him go away, but it would not feel like a lie, and so he would have no words. Before he could say anything at all, the old woman, eyes on his, bag in her hand, the four lizards still peeking at him from her sleeve, said, I know where you live, yes, but I could not have come to you. I cannot leave my house except at dark. But that is not the point of this. The point is that I did not poison your cat. Now she was lying. He was sure of it. Witches did lie. They said and did what they needed to do and say to get what they wanted, to trip people up, especially children. They hated the happiness and lives of ordinary people, and they hate the innocence of children, Antonio's mother had told him and his friends at dinner at once. So they did whatever they could to trick you, to hurt you. It had been this way forever, world without end. My cat was poisoned, the boy said. Yes, the old woman answered. But it was not poison. What? Your cat ate my lizard. So? My lizard was the poison. I do not understand you. My lizards are not ordinary lizards, and because they are not, they are poison to anything that eats them. She was playing more tricks now. She was saying whatever she needed to say to make him lose his courage forever. It was like a spell, one that used logic to confuse the mind, to take away confidence. He could feel himself spinning within it, the spell, like a moth in a spider's cocoon. He wanted to run, but he couldn't. He needed the bag back. How could he leave without it? You are putting a spell on me, he said, as if saying it might change it. Words have no power, she answered, which the listener does not give them. This was true. He had thought this himself when his mother, in an anger she would not let go of, used words that made him feel shame. Without her words he knew there could be no shame. That is true, he found himself saying, not wanting to, but saying it anyway, and when he did, she made a little smile with her mouth. It was both wonderful and horrible. The little sticks showed against the dark hole of her mouth, and the skin of her lips pulled tight, as if on a corpse's skull, cracking. Little lines of blood appeared in the cracks, but the smile did not give up. It stayed. If it was a spell that he was feeling, it was not a bad one. "'What are they?' he asked suddenly, if they are not lizards. After another snort, she said, "'They are what is left of the man I loved.' as he stared at her black dress, the one so many old women in this country wore. He knew that this, too, was true. As if tired out from her smile, she frowned then, but said gently enough, Come in. This was how the story always went, didn't it? The witch would get the boy or girl inside her hut, and that would be the end of it. 
as Perotto had told them once, a witch's spells are more powerful where she lives, in her own hut, where, like her smell or breath or bony hand, they are a part of her and have her power. She needed to get him inside to do what she wanted to him. Any witch would. The gentleness of her words was a lie, wasn't it? I cannot make you enter, she said. I can only invite you. Oh, this had to be a trick. This kindness, this honesty, this pretending she didn't have the power, the spells to make him do what she wanted. A witch, Emilio had told them, will tell you anything she needs to tell you. Emilio knew because his own uncle had been killed by a witch's spell during the war. With a lie, she got him to sit beside her on a bench in the old cemetery, telling him she was there to grieve her sister. She touched his hand just once, but it was enough to put it on him. Fifteen days later, he died in his bed like a dog. She was offering him the bag now. He could leave if he wanted. If you will not come in, you should have your cat back, to bury it as you wish, to say a blessing over it, because it was something you loved. This was not how witches were supposed to talk. Such kindness. It was more trickery. It had to be. He would grab the bag and leave before she changed her mind. But as he took the bag from her, the lizards in her sleeve scampered down her arm and on to his. He jumped and started to turn, to run. But she was looking at him with her one brown eye and her one green eye, and the lizards did not feel wrong. They scampered down his arm again, back up, and stopped, watching him. He could not look away. They were green and beautiful, and they seemed to like him. If they were a trick, they were not a trick from any story he had ever heard. They were not howling black cats or screeching owls or hissing vipers, the pets witches were known for. They were green and cheerful, and he was sorry he had ever killed the lizards of this country. As he looked at the ones on his arm, the walls and roof of the hut began moving again like a slow green wave toward them. They flowed like water down the path, under the old woman's feet, around them to his own sandals. For a moment he felt a jerk of fear, but their toes and tails on his bare legs tickled, and he couldn't stop a smile. When the wave stopped at last, he was covered with them. His arms and legs and shorts and shirt were green. He itched, yes, but it was fine. Come in, she said again, and walking carefully so as not to knock any of them from him, he followed her into the hut. As he stood in the darkness with her, she touched his arm lightly, and he didn't jump. Then she whistled once, as if calling a dog, but it was a witch's whistle, not just a sound in the air for ears, but something more. As she whistled, a green light swirled like fog from her mouth, and the lizard that had followed them in, their tiny faces lit faintly by the dim light from her mouth, looked up at her from the floor. She had begun to whisper, too, and it sounded like, Ricordatello, remember him. And the lizards, in the light of the fog, their eyes like green stars, began to move toward the dark center of the room. Beside him her voice said, Can you see our bed? He could. In the dim green light he could see in the middle of the floor what looked like blankets, heavy wool ones, lying on a piece of lumpy canvas. What was inside the canvas he didn't know. Straw, rags, old clothes, anything to fill it. The bed was on the floor, and except for blankets, it was empty. He was sure of it. But the lizards were gathering there, and as he looked at the green shadow that was the bed, it began to change. 
It was empty, yes, but something was taking shape there. The lizards on his arms and legs moved once and fell still. He took a breath. This is where we slept when the war was over. Yes, the boy heard himself say, and a lizard moved from his neck to his ear. We lived here because we were poor, she was saying, though in what language he was not sure. My husband, whose name was Pagano Lorenzo, picked grapes at Boca di Magra. That was what he did. Yes, the boy said again. Do you see him? What? Do you see my husband? No. That is because my sister, who lives in Pozzuoli, the village of Red Doorways, killed him. She did not have a man. Her man, whom she did not really love, died at Monte Cavallo in the war while mine returned. She hated me for my fortune, and one day asked us to dinner. She made that airy, using the darkest clams, and the portion she gave to him was poisoned. It is easy to do, if you know stregeria. If you are strega, you could poison your sister in jealousy, or at least try, witch to witch. But why bother? Why not instead take away what she loved, what you yourself do not have, so that you can watch her grieve forever? Do you see him now, ragazzo? The boy, who was shaking again, blinked and brushed a lizard's tail from his eye. He could see that the shadow on the bed was bigger now. He could feel the lizards on his arms and legs leaving him to join the others on the bed where the shadow was growing. I... I... Boys who tell stories about us do not understand. We cannot do everything. I could not save my husband. He died on this bed from the poison, the kind used for rats, and he died in great pain. With a spell she blinded his tongue to the taste of it, and he ate it all. The shadow on the bed was darkening, and he could not stop shaking. It was not a ghost he was seeing, but something else. I did what I could, ragazzo. The lizards of these groves felt for us the affection we felt for them. They had lived with us, and we with them, and so, when my husband died, I gave his soul to them, a piece to each, thousand pieces. The boy was shaking so hard he could barely stand. The shadow on the bed was complete, and the old woman, though her legs and hip hurt her, stepped to the window now to open it. As sunlight fell to the bed, he saw what the lizards had made, the shape they had taken. A man, sleeping peacefully on his stomach, green as lichen in the sunlight, but one that in the night would be real as a man needed to be for his wife with her memories to fall asleep. She had wanted the piece of him back, that was all. He saw it now. She hadn't poisoned his cat. The lizard had. The lizard that was a piece of her husband's poisoned soul. I sleep well at night, the old woman was saying, because we sleep well when we sleep with what we love. How do you sleep, ragazzo? As the boy walked back through the groves to his house, the bag in his hand, he could hear the grass rustling just behind him. How many there were he did not know, a hundred, perhaps, maybe more. He wanted to look, but did not want to scare them away. Even when he reached the steps to his house, he did not look back. 
He got a shovel from the shed, returned to the nearest trees, and dug a hole where his parents could not see him digging. There he buried the body, saying the blessing as he filled the hole with dirt. He used the Lord's Prayer, of course, because he had used it before when his pets had died, but also because he did not know another. They waited in the grass while he did this. Then he went back to the house, to his room, stepping quietly past the kitchen and his mother's anger, which did not have to be his any more, he knew, and saw how it would go. He would open his bedroom window just enough that they could enter at will, sunning themselves on the window sill when they wanted to, coming in when the sun had set, at night, and any night he wished it. He would need only lie down on his bed, whisper, Remember her, to the darkness, and wait to feel the tiny feet and tails moving over him as the animal, the one that he had slept with every night for a year, took shape beside him, paws tucked neatly under it, body somehow warm, so that he could sleep at last. Okay, creepy. I've never been that good with lizards, so I may be biased. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Please remember that we operate under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. Share and enjoy, but don't change or sell. And if you like what we bring you, you can share the link on Facebook to tell your friends and family about us. In the meantime, take it easy. Keep smiling. Don't forget that favourite beverage. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.